One thing we often say about citizen science is it allows anybody and everybody to turn their curiosity about the world into real impact. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. This all got started when I broke my ankle. A friend tried to console me by saying, maybe you'll make a show out of all of this, gesturing vaguely at my crutches, orthopedic boot, and new decidedly homebound status. I'm always in the market for show ideas, so his idea wasn't lost on me. I thought, well, okay, maybe I will. Facing surgery on said ankle, I took the suggestion literally, and a few minutes of web surfing brought me to a study on CMF bone stimulation as adjunct to surgical treatment of ankle fractures. That information was via Research Match, a nonprofit program funded by the National Institutes of Health that helps connect people interested in research studies with researchers from top medical centers across the U.S. Holy cow, I thought, maybe I could get a show, some experimental treatment, and insight into the scientific process. It turned out that the study had been discontinued some time ago, but my curiosity was officially piqued and my appetite whetted. I began to look around for other ways that I, we, anyone who might be so inclined could get involved in research and not just patient study subject sitting at home with broken bones. In fact, there is a wide and allied network out there trying to speed the research to practice pipeline at every point along that ponderous path including folks who are devoting themselves to nurturing exactly the kind of budding curiosity I was feeling. Organizations like SciStarter, Zooniverse, and the City Nature Challenge. Folks with a particular eye on citizen scientists. Citizen science, also and variously known as community science, crowd science, crowdsourced science, civic science, participatory monitoring or volunteer monitoring, is scientific research conducted with participation from the public. Simply put, says Sethiraman Panjanathan, director of the National Science Foundation, a citizen scientist is anyone who is curious about the world and eager to help explore and understand it. And as luck would have it, April is Citizen Science Month, a whole month dedicated to curious people who want to be part of finding answers to today's research questions. As the good people at SciStarter remind us, science needs more eyes and ears and perspectives than any scientist possesses. So here to tell us more about that and explore what we might accomplish by leaning into this citizen science curiosity practice is Caroline Nickerson, advisor to SciStarter and Citizen Science Month. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, happy Citizen Science Month to you. Oh my goodness. It has already been such a thrilling time. We've been doing something every single day. I always say that April is really just an excuse to celebrate. We should really call it Citizen Science Year because you can do it 365 days a year. That being said, April is a big deal. 
you know, we've had online events every day. We've seen people do in-person events every day. And I think it's our most effective way of bringing new people in as volunteers who are curious about things. April is a, it never fails to bring in some new people. Ah, nice. So tell us about SciStarter and the inspiration for it and Citizen Science Month. Give us the kind of the background. Definitely. So SciStarter was founded by Darlene Cavalier. It actually came out of a grad school project she was doing over a decade ago where she wanted to understand how people like her, you know, she wasn't a trained scientist. She had worked at Discover Magazine and at Disney. Her degree was in communications. She had also been a professional cheerleader, and now she was getting a degree in the history of science. She wanted to understand how someone like her could be a meaningful part of the scientific process. So that's where she discovered all these differences in science projects where you could help map spiral galaxies or, you know, monitor your local water quality or help Alzheimer's researchers with their search for a cure by making simple annotations on blood vessels. So many different ways that you could be meaningfully involved. So many different projects that people had started and were seeking volunteers. But it was really hard for these researchers who, quite frankly, need help who need the public to empower them to do their important work uh, and need the public as partners, they weren't able to find these volunteers and these curious, passionate people weren't able to find these researchers who needed their help. So that's where SciStarter was born. SciStarter is that bridge. It connects anybody and everybody to real science they can do. And it connects scientists and researchers to the volunteer communities who make their work possible. So you listed some of the kinds of science and research that's being started. What's the scale? I mean, like how many studies are currently up yeah. and running? How many people are involved? So SciStarter is the world's biggest citizen science website. And there are thousands of projects, events, and tools that people have added for others to discover. And we have millions of visitors. So there's a real hunger for this, which is really exciting to me. But citizen science is global, too. You know, there are people on every continent, including Antarctica, engaging in these projects as volunteers, collecting or analyzing data. And for those who are scared of the word data, data is just information. It's <laughs> words and pictures. It's numbers. It's just information about the world that we analyze, we take a look at to draw some sort of conclusion and make and create some new knowledge about the world. So there are people on every continent of all ages, all backgrounds, engaging in this type of work and making a big difference. You know, it's interesting. I, I have perused the listings and just kind of dropped in on a couple. And I, I was telling somebody earlier today that I participated in a world music study being hosted by the Yale Music Lab, I think. It's something I know absolutely nothing about. I don't think of myself as a particularly musical person at all. So I thought, well, this will be fun. Like, I don't know. I don't know squat about this. And it was interesting just to see sort of how the science was organized, how they were using me as a participant, but then they were also educating me, you know? So it was sort of feeding my curiosity on a couple of different levels. And it feels like it's maybe designed to do that. Yes. Yeah. So Darlene has written about this for the National Academies before, but a lot of projects, if they design for learning with learning in mind, mm. it enhances the participant experience and it also makes the science more robust. I, that's one reason I really like doing citizen science. I think it you typically learn something new when you do it. So most projects, when we just anecdotally, how I see people participate, they either participate because they really, really care about an issue or they really are curious about it and truly enjoy it. 
So if you love birds and butterflies, you can go outside, keep counts of the birds and butterflies you see, send those numbers to different citizen science projects and help researchers understand how their populations are doing, if they might need some help. That's an example of being you know, really curious and passionate about something and engaging. Or if you are nervous about, let's say, your, your drinking water, you could participate in the Crowd the Tap project, which asks you to do a simple scratch test of your water pipes to help understand if they're made of lead or not. It's a first step towards safe drinking water. So you can either, you know, be worried about an issue or be really curious about it. But many of these projects, you end up learning something like Land Lost Lookout is a project I really like. It's you're able to analyze satellite data from the Gulf Coast, to understand wetland loss. So if wetland loss is occurring because of oil and gas, if it's occurring because of sea level rise, it's occurring if it's occurring for some other reason. Whenever I participate in that project, I learn something new about wetlands while I'm also helping researchers understand what type of uh, wetland loss is occurring and where so they can target those areas for resiliency and to you know make the Gulf Coast safer and better equipped to deal with hurricanes. So it's a big mix of reasons, but yeah, you usually end up learning something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm also struck, you know, it's real science. It's not like this is let's get kids to do things that sort of is sort of science-y. Like these are real vetted, approved, rigorous protocols that people can contribute to. And I know the National Science Foundation director had a nice line. He talked about these STEM spark moments. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I want to invite you, if you have a good story uh, around something like that, that sort of those moments where this is a catalyst to something bigger, maybe. Yeah, well, I know with me, I didn't like science when I was a kid. So that's why I always kind of smile when people are like, I tell people I do citizen science work and they say, oh, this could be great for my kids. It's like, oh no, not all kids. I And Darlene and I have talked about this a lot. She had a similar story where when a scientist would come into my class at school, I would just immediately tune them out because I would be like, okay, not for me. I associated science with memorization and stress and tests I would fail So I didn't really get into science until I became a citizen scientist when I was in college. And I actually got involved in a monarch butterfly monitoring project because I thought they were beautiful. And when I mentioned the example of wanting to understand their populations, I was talking about me. Um, (laughs) I know that monarch butterflies are uh, at risk and I wanted to help researchers understand them better. So hopefully we can have them for the next generation. So and then I I just kept on doing more projects. And here I am today working with SciStarter implementing citizen science into my PhD. And citizen science also, I think in terms of a spark moment, one of my favorite stories to tell is I, I do, I've done pageants and um, citizen science was a big part of my pageant platform. I, I partnered with the Land Loss Lookout Project and people from all around the world as part of my service project for the pageant were analyzing that data. And we actually had a team from Nigeria, the Unique Mappers, they were students and, as well as community members from Niger- Nigeria who were just really moved by the project and wanted to help because wetland loss, you know, the Gulf Coast is at risk for hurricanes. Wetland loss is a huge issue. We really need to understand the problem to make the Gulf Coast safer. And they classified so much data to help the people of Louisiana. So then the next year for Citizen Science Month, we were able to work with them at SciStarter, um, as well as with the project Land Loss Lookout, the team behind it at Healthy Gulf and this other organization called Cardoscope. And we used the tech tools they had built to analyze the Land Loss Lookout data to look at oil spills in Nigeria, which was a project that those volunteers in Nigeria were really passionate about. So Mm. I think that's just a great global citizen science story. And it all happened because, you know, 
pageant work because people <laughs> got excited by um, the citizen science project spotlighted in my pageant. So citizen science can fit into every aspect of your life with everybody in your life. That's so interesting because one of the things that I've been wondering about was how citizen science might also make sort of a larger social contribution. And I think you've you've sort of laid that out in terms of piquing people's curiosity a little bit and giving people a place to go with things and a way of thinking. I mean, it, it sounds like it gives people a sense of agency, right? Like, oh, maybe I could do something about this thing that really bothers me, that really concerns me, and that maybe that's got sort of larger applications as well, do you think? Especially during COVID, Citizen Science Month was booming during COVID. Mm. That was actually our first Citizen Science Month. Before then, it was just a day in April, and our partners had asked us to expand it into a month. They wanted more, so we gave them more. <laughs> but in April 2020, all of Citizen Science Month was completely online. You know, we're more in-person now, and we also still have a bunch of online stuff. Go to citizensciencemonth.org and check it out. But people were really joining these webinars and these online events. And I think it's because citizen science allows people to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Yeah. And people were very hungry for connection then. So being able to join one of these online events and start mapping a spiral galaxy with a spiral graph project or you know, classifying wetlands with the land loss lookout project, uh, that was really big for people. And I think that still rings true now, even if you're going in person to your library to participate in a citizen science project, it I think harkens to why we're here and like why we're able to do good things for each other. It allows to be part of knowledge creation and a really cool, big project. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Caroline Nickerson of SciStarter, which serves as a hub where curious people can search for a research project that meets their passions and their interests a place to put our curiosities to work. It really does seem also to make science feel less remote, less elite, mm -hmm. which seems like a, a good thing. You mentioned actually going to your library. I know you've got some interesting partnerships with libraries, schools, museums, and the Girl Scouts. Take a moment, if you would, and talk about what those look like. Yeah. So people can do citizen science on their own. You can just go to SciStarter, find a project, participate from home, participate on your computer or in your own community. But I think it's even more fun when you're able to get others involved. So to that end, we work with a lot of libraries, especially through our partnership with Arizona State University and the Institute for Museum and Library Sciences. We help libraries create kits so people can check those out and do specialized projects or enhance their contributions to different projects. Like iNaturalist has a kit where you can use a lens to make your pictures even better of biodiversity, like plants and animals. We also, you know, we work with Verizon. Verizon volunteers are able to get hours for doing volunteer hours for doing these different projects as part of Verizon's commitment to volunteerism. Or the Girl Scouts, they get to think like a citizen scientist badge for participating in the the journey that um, SciStarter hosts. I think with the libraries too, you mentioned citizen science being for everyone. It really is a democratizing force, and I see that as well. Like one project I really want to shout out is the All of Us Research Program. They are a huge supporter of Citizen Science Month and their precision medicine study. So I'm going to be going to a bunch of libraries in the next few weeks, spreading the word about All of Us, interviewing folks about All of Us. We have a few online events coming up about All of Us too. But basically it asks people to do surveys or submit bio data like blood, and you're able to make medicine more equitable because what works for you, what works for me might be different. So all of us is trying to make medicine very precise. So it helps everybody. It helps all of us and it eliminates disparities. 
And there's also like, there have already been so many interesting findings from that project too. So that's a project that is tailor-made for libraries because anyone can come to the library and learn about it and great for online events as well. Yeah, I was actually wondering whether you're finding that that SciStarter and, and programs like it help engage more diverse participants in STEM activities or whether there are specific things that you're doing to try to broaden the scope? I mean, what are you finding there? That's a huge part of Citizen Science Month, and that's one big reason why we do this every April. And with libraries, most communities have libraries. There are libraries worldwide. I actually did an event online pretty recently with libraries in Malaysia. But libraries reach people who may not have access to the internet, and they can go in the computer lab and tune into an online event or to the health fair and, you know, engage in a citizen science project. So Citizen Science Month on purpose tries to reach everybody. I want every single person on this earth, you know, all 8 billion of us uh, to be a citizen <laughs> scientist. And I think that's one of the big goals of Citizen Science Month. It sounds like you're actually trying to create lifelong habits for this. I mean, you want all of us to participate presumably more than just once. I'm wondering, I collect what I call curiosity practices, things that people do in ways large or small that incorporate curiosity into their days. And I'm wondering if there are both sort of formal curiosity practices that are part of the SciStarter kind of universe, but also I'm just curious for yourself, whether you have developed what I might call curiosity practices, having been involved in this as somebody who wasn't, didn't see themselves as a science person initially. Yeah, definitely. So curiosity is a huge part of what we do. We are always out there going out, learning new things, trying to understand new things. And I think that we see that with our community too. These are people who often do multiple projects. This is interesting, actually. We work with researchers at NC State who try to understand uh, the community of citizen scientists through SciStarter. And they find that most people end up joining multiple projects. These projects are from radically different disciplines. Someone who does stall catchers, which is an Alzheimer's research project that you can do from, from your computer just by analyzing these blood vessels, may also do iNaturalist, where you go outside and take pictures of different plants and animals in your community, in urban areas, rural areas, wherever. So I think that these we've seen our community of curious people. They just really want to know more about the world and they want to discover new things and help the research community do that. And we also, I think curiosity and enthusiasm are close cousins at SciStarter. So when you come to a Citizen Science Month event online, for example, you go to citizenscienceMonth.org and you find an online event. Or if you go to an in-person event or you just participate in a project, we are so happy that you're there and we're so happy you're involved. We are enthusiastically participating alongside you. So we are enthusiastically curious at SciStarter. So do you have a favorite story of somebody or research project that surprised you in some way? I think one thing that is surprising is not every project is run by someone at a university. Some projects are run by nonprofits who maybe really want to understand water quality. The Isaac Walton League, for example, supports Stream Selfie, which is a global project where you can help monitor stream health by taking pictures. It doesn't have to be a selfie of streams and answering some questions about it. I've also seen projects come through that people just, they start a data form via some uh, platform like Anecdata or sitsci.org, and then they're able to involve their community in a monitoring effort 
to collect and analyze data to really understand the world. So one example is there was a monarch butterfly project in Hawaii, a woman had started it. She was there because she was a military spouse. She wasn't connected to a university. She wasn't connected to a nonprofit even. She was just an individual. And she put in the legwork. She designed a really awesome protocol for people to monitor their soil conditions to grow milkweed, which is the monarch butterfly's main source of food. And she created her data form through Anic Data, added the project to SciStarter, and then people were able to get involved. I think that that's something really cool that, you know, anyone can be involved in citizen science at all levels of the process, even as the investigator behind the project, getting other people involved and disseminating those results. It's very cool. It's a very equalizing, empowering kind of approach, isn't it? Definitely. I think citizen science is the future. We're all going to be citizen scientists. I love it. All right. So before I let you go, I want to invite you to participate in a little experiment of my own. I have what I call my big jar of wannabe analogies, literal big jar. And it's uh, got slips of paper in it. I'm going to take out one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. So (laughs) mine is boxing. How is curiosity like boxing? And yours is ice skating. How is curiosity like ice skating? So you want to give it a try first or you want me to go ahead? Um, Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Let's see. So curiosity is like ice skating. Um, because it is an art form, it is a beautiful thing um, that is best accompanied by music and by um, joy and by being willing to try again. If you fall on the ice, you get back up and you keep going. Oh, very nice. Very nice. All right. So mine is boxing. Um, and as a former figure skater, I particularly appreciate that analogy. Um, so boxing, how is curiosity like boxing? Well, some of the same ways. I think it's it's actually an acquired skill. I mean, there's a craft to it, um, but it's also a kind of it's a it's a way of taking something on. And I think curiosity is the same thing. It's a way of sort of taking something on, and whether you think of it as sort of beating it up to get the answers out of it, or just simply to really bodily engage with a topic, I think. That's one way that curiosity is maybe like boxing and audience (laughs) or something totally different. How is curiosity like a potted plant? (laughs) Let me know. Social media. Hashtag analogy. Um, How is curiosity like a potted plant? Oh, I wish I had gotten that one. That's amazing. Uh, well, you know, you, you can put your answer out there on social media and uh, join in answering that question. Uh, I'm planning on it. All right. All right. So, Caroline, thank you so much for this. I have thoroughly enjoyed the research projects that I have just sort of dipped into and I'm really delighted by this frame also of it as a thing that curious people do and hoping will attract more citizen scientists. Yeah, and thank you to you for turning your curiosity into impact with citizen science. After Caroline and I spoke, I realized citizen science had come up before on Choose to be Curious. It was a couple of years ago in a fun conversation with capital naturalist Alonzo Abogadis, right here in Arlington, Virginia. 
and where we are is fantastic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize. I mean, we are in one of the more, the best places to be uh, someone who's interested in the natural world because uh, we're at the southern limit of the northern plants and animals, the northern limit of the southern plants and animals. We're close enough to the mountains that especially along the rivers, all sorts of things get, get washed in and carried in, but we're also close to the shore. And so we get all of that, not to mention we're on a major migration route for, for many different kind of animals. And it turns out that the D.C. area is a wonderful place that if you learn to be observant and you're curious, there is always something there to discover. And it's just trying to find those things. Uh, and sometimes in everyday life, you might think, well, I'm in that very urban area. What can I see? But if you start looking at things carefully, it's just amazing all the stuff that's out there that uh, that's there to amaze us. Well, and you you have written in your blog about two initiatives that sort of get exactly mm-hmm. to that: the City Nature Challenge oh, yeah. and the Bio Blitz. And I'm forgetting now which it was where you tallied 762 observations of 362 different species, representing some interesting biodiversity yeah, yeah. in the Glen Carlin Park. I mean, tell me more about those. That sounds yeah. very cool. So, um, so again. One of the things that is easy to kind of sort out is here we are, we're supposedly trying to protect these natural resources. It's hard to know what you're protecting if you don't know what's out there. And so we've gone to great extents to try to categorize, do biotic inventories of what's out there. But what better way of doing it as well as exposing the, uh, the natural world to people to show them that we have some neat stuff out there than to do these kinds of citizen science projects. And in this particular case, the one you're talking about was the Arlington Bio Blitz that we did, which was small to one park. But again, people were astounded by what neat things are out there and how great it is to share that knowledge. But also by collecting it, then people like myself can say, okay, we have this. We didn't know we had it. How do we protect it? Mm. And also, if we do a lot of these, think of it as like a snapshot in time because it's just one visit to a park over a day-long period. Lots of eyes looking. But if you take enough snapshots, you make a movie. And so we can get a good picture of what's going out there. The City Nature Challenge is really fun because it's grown into a global affair. And the last year, there were 98 different uh, cities from around the world that participated. And we were very lucky to have great participation. We were fifth in in the world uh, for observations, uh, fourth for the number of people who participated. And we ended up, um, which is very respectful considering we were competing in some places like in Brazil where you can go out the door and see a hundred <laughs> different things, um, eighth in the number of different kinds of d- diverse plants and animals. Huh. Yeah. And it's coming up again. I hope you guys join right, whatever. Mark your calendar. Yeah. yeah. Lo- join your yeah. local team to mix, to see what's out there. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can also share your potted plant analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to Caroline Nickerson, links to SciStarter, and all those other citizen science efforts on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Waterborne by Algae Fields via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. I would just really love anyone who's listening to come see me at an online event throughout April or after. 
If you go to citizensciencemonth.org, you can see the whole calendar. I'll also be in person coming up in Milwaukee and Sacramento and Erie, Pennsylvania. So come out, say hello if you happen to be in those areas. But if you're anywhere on Earth, we even did an event with some people in Antarctica recently. But wherever you are on Earth, just tune into one of the online events. I'd love to see you there. And I'd love for you to join the conversation. 